Salvation Outside the Church, Tracing the History of the Catholic Response by Francis A. Sullivan, S.J., Chapter 11, Papal Teaching After Vatican II. It seems appropriate that we should conclude our history of Christian thought on the question of salvation for those outside the Church by examining the principal statements which Popes Paul VI and John Paul II have made on this issue. In this chapter, as in the previous one, we shall focus our attention on the question of the salvation of non-Christians, with particular attention to the question of the role which the non-Christian religions play in their salvation. After presenting the principal statements of each of the two popes, we shall ask whether their teaching manifests any further development of this question beyond the position reached by the Second Vatican Council. We shall also try to assess the impact which post-conciliar Catholic theology of religions has had on papal teaching. We shall begin with that of Pope Paul VI. Pope Paul VI. Paul VI was elected Pope on June 21, 1963, during the interval between the first and second periods of Vatican II. About a year later, during the interval between the second and third periods, he did two things that are relevant to our question. On May 19, 1964, he established the Secretariat for Non-Christians, and on August 6, 1964, he published his first encyclical letter, Ecclesiam Suam. In both of these, he manifested his desire that the Catholic Church engage in dialogue with the other religions of the world. The promotion of such dialogue was always the primary aim of the Secretariat for Non-Christians. This has been made explicit in its new title, Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. Dialogue between the Catholic Church and the rest of the world was also the key theme of Paul VI's first encyclical. He described the partner of this dialogue as consisting of a series of concentric circles, one of which is made up of those who adore the one supreme God whom we also adore. He described this circle in the following terms. We refer to the children, worthy of our affection and respect, of the Hebrew people, faithful to the religion which we call that of the Old Testament. Then to the adorers of God, according to the conception of monotheism, the Muslim religion especially, deserving of our admiration for all that is true and good in their worship of God. And also to the followers of the great Afro-Asiatic religions. Obviously, we cannot share in these various forms of religion, nor can we remain indifferent to the fact that each of them, in its own way, should regard itself as being the equal of any other, and should authorize its followers not to seek to discover whether God has revealed the perfect and definitive form, free from all error, in which he wishes to be known, loved, and served. Indeed, honesty compels us to declare openly our conviction that there is but one true religion, the religion of Christianity. It is our hope that all who seek God and adore him may come to acknowledge its truth. But we do, nevertheless, recognize and respect the moral and spiritual values of the various non-Christian religions, and we desire to join with them in promoting and defending common ideals of religious liberty, human brotherhood, good culture, social welfare, and civil order. For our part, we are ready to enter into discussion on these common ideals, 
and will not fail to take the initiative where our offer of discussion and genuine mutual respect would be well received. At the time when this encyclical was issued, the Second Vatican Council was already considering a declaration concerning the Jews, but there was as yet no conciliar schema concerning the non-Christian religions in general. It was only during the third period of the Council, on November 20, 1964, that the Declaration on the Relationship of the Church to Non-Christian Religions was first presented for discussion. Thus, the positive statements of Paul VI and Ecclesium Suum, expressing admiration for all that is true and good in Muslim worship of God, and respect for the moral and spiritual values of the various non-Christian religions, are rather an anticipation than a consequence of the doctrine of Vatican II. It was during this same period of the Council that Paul VI visited India on the occasion of the Eucharistic Congress held at Bombay, December 2nd to 5th, 1964. His address to members of the non-Christian religions of India contains the following expression of his deep respect for their religious culture. Yours is a land of ancient culture, the cradle of great religions, the home of a nation that has sought God with a relentless desire, and deep meditation and silence, and in hymns of fervent prayer. Rarely has this longing for God been expressed with words so full of the spirit of Advent, as in the words written in your sacred books many centuries before Christ. From the unreal, lead me to the real. From darkness, lead me to light. From death, lead me to immortality. Pope Paul VI's admiration for the spiritual values to be found in other religions was not limited to those of ancient culture, such as he met in India. On October 29, 1967, he published a document addressed to all the peoples of Africa in which he spoke admiringly of the spiritual sense of life which is fundamental to the traditions of Africa. He went on to say that the deepest element of this spiritual sense is a notion of God as the first and ultimate cause of all things, a notion that is more truly perceived than described in words, more truly put into practice in life than comprehended in thought. There can be no doubt of the sincerity of the admiration for the spiritual values in the non-Christian religions which Paul VI expressed here and on other occasions. However, there was another aspect of his thought concerning the non-Christian religions, which is of no less importance for an understanding of his mind concerning the possible significance of those religions in the divine economy of salvation. It is the contrast which he emphasized between those religions and the one true religion, which is Christianity. One brief but emphatic expression of this contrast is found in the exhortation which he gave to the faithful in Rome on the fourth Sunday of Lent, 1966. It is religion that determines our relationship with God, and the Catholic religion is the one that fully establishes that relationship, one that is genuine, true, unique. This is the religion that makes God our communion and our salvation. And the other religions... They are attempts, efforts, endeavors. They are arms raised toward heaven to which they seek to arrive, but they are not a response to the gesture by which God has come to meet man. This gesture is Christianity, Catholic life. These two facets of his thought, esteem for the spiritual values to be found in non-Christian religions, 
and at the same time a sharp contrast between them and Christianity, characterize the most important statement which Paul VI made on this issue, which is found in his apostolic exhortation on evangelization in the modern world, Evangelii Nunciandi. It seems important enough to be quoted in full. This first proclamation of the gospel is also addressed to the immense sections of mankind who practice non-Christian religions. The church respects and esteems these non-Christian religions because they are the living expression of the soul of vast groups of people. They carry within them the echo of thousands of years of searching for God, a quest which is incomplete but often made with great sincerity and righteousness of heart. They possess an impressive patrimony of deeply religious texts. They have taught generations of people how to pray. They are all impregnated with innumerable seeds of the word and can constitute a true preparation for the gospel, to quote a felicitous term used by the Second Vatican Council and borrowed from Eusebius of Caesarea. Such a situation certainly raises complex and delicate questions that must be studied in the light of Christian tradition and the church's magisterium in order to offer to the missionaries of today and of tomorrow new horizons in their contacts with non-Christian religions. We wish to point out above all today that neither respect and esteem for these religions nor the complexity of the questions raised is an invitation to the church to withhold from these non-Christians the proclamation of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, the church holds that these multitudes have the right to know the riches of the mystery of Christ, riches in which we believe that the whole of humanity can find in unsuspected fullness everything that is gropingly searching for concerning God, man, and his destiny, life and death, and truth. Even in the face of natural religious expressions, most worthy of esteem, the church finds support in the fact that the religion of Jesus, which she proclaims through evangelization, objectively places man in relationship with the plan of God, with his living presence, and with his action. She thus causes an encounter with the mystery of divine paternity that bends over towards humanity. In other words, our religion effectively establishes with God an authentic and living relationship which the other religions do not succeed in doing, even though they have, as it were, their arms stretched towards heaven. If one compares this passage of Evangelii Nunciandi with the sentences we have quoted above from a sermon given by Paul VI in Rome in 1966, it is obvious that the encyclical expresses a judgment concerning the non-Christian religions which Paul VI had formed at least eight years earlier. While Evangelii Nunciandi was the fruit of the Synod of Bishops of 1974, whose theme was evangelization, on this point it seems rather to express the personal thought of Paul VI than to represent the views which the bishops had expressed at the Synod. At least some of the bishops, especially those from Asia, had expressed a much more positive judgment about the non-Christian religions than one finds in the papal document. Jacques Dupuy, a theologian who was particularly well acquainted with the contribution which the bishops from India and Asia had made to the Synod, made the following comment. 
At the Synod, the Indian and Asian bishops had advocated an open theology of non-Christian religions, which would look upon these religions not merely as expressions of men's aspirations towards God, but as embodying for their followers a first, though incomplete, approach of God towards men. The document Evangelii Nunciandi refuses to follow this line of thought. It is evident from the passage we have quoted from the sermon which Paul VI gave in Rome in 1966 that at that time he had already formed the judgment which he later spelled out in greater detail in Evangelii Nunciandi. Naturally, the question arises as to what might have influenced his thinking about the significance of the non-Christian religions. I shall venture to guess that it was an article by the noted French theologian Jean Danilou which appeared in Etudes in 1964. It is well known that Paul VI followed the writings of certain French Catholic theologians with special attention. His esteem for Jean Danilou is evidenced by the fact that in 1969, he named him a cardinal. There is a striking similarity, not to say identity, between the judgment expressed by Paul VI both in his 1966 sermon and in Evangelii Nunciandi, and the following excerpts from the 1964 article by Danny Liu. The religions are a gesture of man towards God. Revelation is the witness of a gesture of God towards man. The religions are creations of human genius. They witness to the value of exalted religious personalities, such as Buddha, Zoroaster, Orpheus but they also have the defects of what is human. Revelation is the work of God alone. Religion expresses man's desire for God. Revelation witnesses that God has responded to that desire. Religion does not save. Jesus Christ grants salvation. Besides this article of Danny Lu, another factor that may have influenced Paul VI's treatment of the non-Christian religions in Evangelii Nunciandi was the fact that some Catholic theologians were describing the non-Christian religions as the ordinary way of salvation and Christianity as the extraordinary way. Toward the end of Evangelii Nunciandi, Paul VI speaks of various excuses which people were using to justify giving up the work of evangelization. Here I believe we can see one of the motives for his negative attitude toward recognizing a salvific role for the non-Christian religions. The most insidious of these excuses are certainly the ones for which people claim to find support in such and such a teaching of the council. Why proclaim the gospel when the whole world is saved by uprightness of heart? We know that the world and history are filled with seeds of the word. Is it not, therefore, an illusion to claim to bring the gospel where it already exists in the seeds that the Lord himself has sown? Anyone who takes the trouble to study in the council's documents the questions upon which these excuses draw too superficially will find quite a different view. God can accomplish this salvation in whomsoever he wishes by ways which he alone knows. And yet, if his son came, it was precisely in order to reveal to us, by his word and by his life, the ordinary paths of salvation, and he has commanded us to transmit this revelation to others with his own authority. It can hardly be doubted that Paul VI's insistence that Christ has revealed to us the ordinary paths of salvation manifests his disapproval of the idea put forward by H. R. Schlett 
and others that the non-Christian religions constitute the ordinary way of salvation. There is good reason to believe that Paul VI shared the fears expressed by some missionaries that to attribute a positive role to the non-Christian religions in the economy of salvation would have a negative effect on the work of evangelization. Hence, I suggest that his description of those religions as human strivings toward God, which never succeed in establishing an authentic relationship with him, was influenced both by Danny Lu's theology of religions and by a pastoral concern, lest a more positive appreciation of their role would lead to a loss of missionary zeal in the Catholic Church. At the beginning of this chapter, I said that I would be comparing the papal teaching on salvation for non-Christians with the doctrine of Vatican II and with post-conciliar Catholic theology. How then does the teaching of Paul VI compare with that of Vatican II? Looking first at the expressions of respect and esteem for the values to be found in the non-Christian religions and comparing them with what was said by Vatican II, we can say that Paul VI has been even more positive than the Council was in its description of such values. For instance, the Council did not say that those religions possess an impressive patrimony of deeply religious texts. It did not say that they have taught generations of people how to pray. It spoke of the presence in them of seeds of the word, but it did not say that they are all impregnated with innumerable seeds of the word. So we can say that Paul VI was more generous than Vatican II had been in his description of the positive elements to be found in those religions. On the other hand, we do not find in the documents of Vatican II anything quite so negative in its assessment of the non-Christian religions as we also find in statements by Paul VI. They are natural religious expressions. While it is only the religion of Jesus that objectively places man in the living presence of God. Although non-Christian religions have their arms stretched out towards heaven, they do not succeed in bringing people into an authentic and living relationship with God. The non-Christian religions are human strivings toward God, but they never reach him. It is only in Christianity that an authentic encounter with God takes place, because it is only here that the Divine Father himself bends down to humanity. That raises the question, how did Paul VI understand these two aspects of his thought to be consistent with one another? If the non-Christian religions are all impregnated with innumerable seeds of the word, how can they be merely natural expressions of religious strivings toward God? Would not the presence in them of such seeds of the word mean that the Holy Spirit had sown these seeds, as Vatican II suggested in Ad Gentis 15? Would not the elements of truth and grace to be found among them manifest a sort of secret presence of God, as Vatican II also said they would, Ad Gentis 9? It is not clear to me how Paul VI resolved the tension between these two aspects of his thought. On the other hand, it is fairly clear which direction in post-conciliar theology Pope Paul preferred to follow. It is that taken by Jean Danilou and Henri de Lubac, and not that taken by Karl Rahner and many other respected Catholic theologians. I do not know of any statement of Paul VI in which he has explicitly rejected the notion that the non-Christian religions can be understood as mediations of salvation for those who belong to them in good faith. But neither have I found any statement of his that would favor such an understanding of their role in the economy of salvation. 
On the contrary, his description of the other religions as natural religious expressions, which do not succeed in establishing an authentic and living relationship with God, would suggest that he had little sympathy for the development of Catholic thinking about the salvific role of non-Christian religions, which we have followed in our previous chapter. We must now see what Pope John Paul II has said on this issue. Pope John Paul II On March 4, 1979, during the first year of his pontificate, Pope John Paul II issued his first encyclical, entitled Redemptor Hominis, in which he expressed the desire of the Catholic Church to engage in dialogue with members of the other religions of the world. It is significant that in this first encyclical, John Paul already stressed the aspect of his thought about the non-Christians that would become the key element of his teaching in their regard. This is, respect for the presence and activity of the Holy Spirit in non-Christians and in their religions, a presence and activity which is seen above all in their practice of virtue, their spirituality, and their prayer. We see this in the following passages of his encyclical. What we have just said must be applied, although in another way, and with due differences, to activity for coming closer together with the representatives of the non-Christian religions, an activity expressed through dialogue, contacts, prayer in common, investigation of the treasures of human spirituality, in which, as we know well, the members of these religions also are not lacking. Does it not sometimes happen that the firm belief of the followers of the non-Christian religions, a belief that is also an effect of the spirit of truth operating outside the visible confines of the mystical body, can make Christians ashamed of being often themselves so disposed to doubt concerning the truth revealed by God? The missionary attitude always begins with a feeling of deep esteem for what is in man, for what man has himself worked out in the depths of his spirit concerning the most profound and important problems. It is a question of respecting everything that has been brought about in him by the spirit, which blows where it wills. Two years later, during his first visit as Pope to Asia, John Paul addressed a radio message to the people of that continent in which he said, I have come to Asia to be a witness to the spirit who is active in the history of peoples and of nations. Coming to the peoples of Asia, I encounter the local heritage and the ancient cultures that contain praiseworthy elements of spiritual growth, indicating the paths of life and conduct that are often so near to those found in the gospel of Christ. The Catholic Church accepts the truth and goodness found in these religions, and she sees reflections there of the truth of Christ. What seems to bring together and unite, in a particular way, Christians and the believers of other religions is an acknowledgement of the need for prayer as an expression of man's spirituality directed towards the absolute. Even when, for some, he is the great unknown, he nevertheless remains always in reality the same living God. We trust that whenever the human spirit opens itself in prayer to this unknown God, an echo will be heard of the same spirit who, knowing the limits and weakness of the human person, himself prays in us and on our behalf, expressing our plea in a way that could never be put into words. The intercession of the Spirit of God who prays in us and for us is the fruit of the mystery of the redemption of Christ, in which the all-embracing love of the Father has been shown to the world.
In his visits to countries with a significant non-Christian population, Pope John Paul invariably addressed the leaders of their religions. A typical example of his expression of esteem for their spirituality is seen in the following passage of the address which he gave in Madras to the leaders of the religions of India. The Catholic Church recognizes the truths that are contained in the religious traditions of India. This recognition makes true dialogue possible. Here today, the Church wishes to voice again her true appreciation of the great heritage of the religious spirit that is manifested in your cultural tradition. The Church's approach to other religions is one of genuine respect. With them, she seeks mutual collaboration. This respect is twofold. Respect for man in his quest for answers to the deepest questions of his life and respect for the action of the spirit in man. Pope John Paul's visit to India took place in February 1986. During that same year, he issued his encyclical letter on the Holy Spirit, Dominum et Vivificantem, in which he developed the theme of the universal action of the Holy Spirit. We cannot limit ourselves to the 2,000 years which have passed since the birth of Christ. We need to go further back to embrace the whole of the action of the Holy Spirit even before Christ. From the beginning, throughout the world, and especially in the economy of the Old Covenant, for this action has been exercised in every place and at every time, indeed in every individual, according to the eternal plan of salvation, whereby this action was to be closely linked with the mystery of the incarnation and redemption, which in its turn exercised its influence on those who believed in the future coming of Christ. But we need to look further and go further afield, knowing that the wind blows where it wills, according to the image used by Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus. The Second Vatican Council, centered primarily on the theme of the Church, reminds us of the Holy Spirit's activity also outside the visible body of the Church. The Council speaks precisely of all people of goodwill and whose hearts grace works in an unseen way. For, since Christ died for all, and since the ultimate vocation of man is in fact one and divine, we ought to believe that the Holy Spirit, in a manner known only to God, offers to every man the possibility of being associated with this Paschal mystery. During the same year, 1986, at the invitation of Pope John Paul II, there took place at Assisi an event that was surely unique in the history of the world, a day of prayer for peace, in which representatives of the major Christian confessions and the major non-Christian religions of the world took part. The clearest explanation of the Pope's intention in initiating this day of prayer and his understanding of its significance is found in his Christmas address to the members of the Roman Curia on December 22, 1986. In this, he said, At Assisi, in an extraordinary way, there was the discovery of the unique value that prayer has for peace. Indeed, it was seen that it is impossible to have peace without prayer, the prayer of all, each one in his own identity and in search of the truth. In keeping with what we have said, one must see in this another wonderful manifestation of that unity which binds us together, beyond the differences and divisions which are known to all. Every authentic prayer is under the influence of the Spirit who intercedes insistently for us, because we do not even know how to pray as we ought. But He prays in us 
with unutterable groanings, and the one who searches hearts knows what are the desires of the Spirit. See Romans 8, 26-27. We can indeed maintain that every authentic prayer is called forth by the Holy Spirit, who is mysteriously present in the heart of every person. His most recent encyclical, Redemptoris Missio, on the permanent validity of the Church's missionary mandate, has given Pope John Paul the opportunity to develop, in a more systematic way, his thoughts on the significance of the non-Christian religions. His first reference to them comes in the form of an objection. Is it not possible to attain salvation in any religion? Why, then, should there be missionary activity? In his reply, Pope John Paul insists that the recognition of spiritual gifts in other religions in no way diminishes the unique role of Christ as the one mediator between God and mankind. In the process of discovering and appreciating the manifold gifts, especially the spiritual treasures that God has bestowed on every people, we cannot separate those gifts from Jesus Christ, who is at the center of God's plan for salvation. Just as by his incarnation, the Son of God united himself in some sense with every human being, so too we are obliged to hold that the Holy Spirit offers everyone the possibility of sharing in the Paschal mystery in a manner known to God. God admits best, 22. God's plan is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Ephesians 1.10 John Paul insists that while salvation is offered to all, it is always salvation in Christ. The universality of salvation means that it is granted not only to those who explicitly believe in Christ and have entered the church. Since salvation is offered to all, it must be made concretely available to all. But it is clear that today, as in the past, many people do not have an opportunity to come to know or accept the gospel revelation or to enter the church. The social and cultural conditions in which they live do not permit this, and frequently they have been brought up in other religious traditions. For such people, salvation in Christ is accessible by virtue of a grace which, while having a mysterious relationship to the church, does not make them formally part of the church, but enlightens them in a way which is accommodated to their spiritual and material situation. This grace comes from Christ. It is the result of his sacrifice and is communicated by the Holy Spirit. It enables each person to attain salvation through his or her free cooperation. Here we find an extremely important statement concerning the way in which non-Christians are saved. For those who are brought up in other religious traditions, the grace which comes from Christ enlightens them in a way which is accommodated to their spiritual condition. Since their spiritual condition can be expected normally to reflect the religious traditions in which they have been brought up, it would logically follow that the grace they receive will also be accommodated to those religious traditions. Can we conclude that their religious traditions can serve in some way as mediations of such grace? John Paul II does not draw this conclusion, but he does say that the unique mediation of Christ does not exclude participated forms of mediation. Here are his words. Although participated forms of mediation of different kinds and degrees are not excluded, they acquire meaning and value only from Christ's own mediation, and they cannot be understood as parallel or complementary to his. 
While we do not know whether John Paul II would think of including the non-Christian religions, or at least elements of their spirituality, among such participated forms of mediation, which he recognizes to be of different kinds and degrees, at least it is clear that he acknowledges the existence and saving function of such other mediations, provided that they are not understood as parallel or complementary to the unique mediation of Christ. This is certainly a fundamental principle in the theory we have described in the previous chapter, even though the Pope has not spelled out its application in the way that Rahner and others have done. In any case, the encyclical on the missions gave John Paul the opportunity to develop further a theme which, as we have seen, characterizes his approach to non-Christians, namely, his appreciation of the evidence of the action of the Holy Spirit both in individuals and in their religions. It is the Spirit who sows the seeds of the Word, present in various customs and cultures, preparing them for full maturity in Christ. Thus the Spirit, who blows where he wills, see John 3, 8, who was already in the world before Christ was glorified, Agentis 4, and who has filled the world, holds all things together, and knows what is said, Wisdom 1, 7, leads us to broaden our vision in order to ponder his activity in every time and place. I have repeatedly called this fact to mind, and it has guided me in my meetings with a wide variety of peoples. The church's relationship with other religions is dictated by a twofold respect. Respect for man and his quest for answers to the deepest questions of his life, and respect for the action of the spirit in man. Excluding any mistaken interpretation, the interreligious meeting held in Assisi was meant to confirm my conviction that every authentic prayer is prompted by the Holy Spirit, who is mysteriously present in every human heart. It is not surprising that John Paul II, who personally engages in dialogue with members of other religions during his many pilgrimages, should have described interreligious dialogue as part of the Church's evangelizing mission. He has explained the reason for this in the following way. Understood as a method and means of mutual knowledge and enrichment, dialogue is not in opposition to the mission ad gentis. Indeed, it has special links with that mission and is one of its expressions. This mission, in fact, is addressed to those who do not know Christ and his gospel and who belong, for the most part, to other religions. In Christ, God calls all peoples to himself, and he wishes to share with them the fullness of his revelation and love. He does not fail to make himself present in many ways, not only to individuals, but also to entire peoples, through their spiritual riches, of which their religions are the main and essential expression, even when they contain gaps, insufficiencies, and errors. Dialogue does not originate from tactical concerns or self-interest but is an activity with its own guiding principles, requirements, and dignity. It is demanded by deep respect for everything that has been brought about in human beings by the Spirit who blows where he wills. Through dialogue, the Church seeks to uncover the seeds of the Word, a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. These are found in individuals and in the religious traditions of mankind. Dialogue is based on hope and love and will bear fruit in the Spirit. Other religions constitute a positive challenge for the church. They stimulate her both to discover and acknowledge the signs of Christ's presence and the working of the Spirit, 
as well as to examine more deeply her own identity and to bear witness to the fullness of revelation which she has received for the good of all. We have now followed the thought of Pope John Paul II with regard to non-Christians, from his first encyclical to his last one. It is time now to see whether and in what respect he has gone beyond the teaching of Vatican II and how his teaching compares with the developments that have taken place in Catholic theology since the Council, especially on the question of the significance of the non-Christian religions. There is good reason to say that the text of Vatican II, which has been foundational in John Paul II's approach to this question, is the one which says that grace works in an unseen way in the heart of every person of goodwill, and that we must believe that the Holy Spirit offers to every person the possibility of being associated with the Paschal Mystery of Christ. Gaudium et Spes 22. The difference is that, in the documents of Vatican II, this reference to the universal presence and activity of the Holy Spirit offering grace to every human person is a rare occurrence and receives no significant development. On the contrary, in the writings and addresses of John Paul II, it has become a principal theme in every context in which he has spoken about the non-Christian world. Furthermore, while this conciliar text spoke only of the working of the Spirit in individuals, Pope John Paul has consistently recognized the fruits of the activity of the Spirit also in non-Christian religions. It is here that we must recognize the contribution which he has made to official Catholic teaching on this question. He has spoken more positively about the evidence of the presence and working of the Holy Spirit in the non-Christian religions than either Vatican II or Paul VI had done. And more eloquent than any discourse was his invitation to the leaders of the major non-Christian religions to join him at Assisi for the Day of Prayer for Peace. Here he gave dramatic proof of his conviction that every authentic prayer is prompted by the Holy Spirit, who is mysteriously present in every human heart. What about his attitude regarding the post-conciliar developments in Catholic theology on this question? First of all, it is obvious that he emphatically rejects any theory that would displace Christ from the center of the divine plan of salvation. He likewise insists that, as the universal sacrament of salvation, the church retains a necessary role in the salvation of the world, which, in the case of non-Christians, means that the grace by which salvation is accessible to them has a mysterious relationship to the church. As did Paul VI, he indicated his disapproval of the suggestion that the non-Christian religions constitute the ordinary way of salvation by insisting that the church is the ordinary means of salvation and she alone possesses the fullness of the means of salvation. Does John Paul II recognize the non-Christian religions as extraordinary means of salvation? As far as I know, he has not used any such term in speaking of them. In fact, I have not found any passage in which he explicitly takes up the question of their significance for the salvation of their adherents. He certainly recognizes the role of those religions in inculcating faith in God, habits of prayer, and other virtuous dispositions that surely have something to do with people's relationship with God and hence with their salvation. But I have not found any explicit reference to the question whether non-Christian religions can be understood as mediations of salvation for their adherents. The statement of John Paul II, which seems to me to have the most significant bearing on this question, is one I have quoted above, in which, after speaking of Christ's universal mediation, he went on to say, 
Although participated forms of mediation of different kinds and degrees are not excluded, they acquire meaning and value only from Christ's own mediation, and they cannot be understood as parallel or complementary to his. One can only conjecture whether he would recognize the non-Christian religions as such participated forms of mediation for the salvation of their adherents. As we have seen in the previous chapter, the recognition of such a role of mediation for the non-Christian religions in the divine plan of salvation is a key element in the thinking of many Catholic theologians since Vatican II. Pope John Paul has not explicitly endorsed the conclusions to which they have come, but neither have I found anything in his writings or addresses that would signify a repudiation of their views. Finally, I would suggest that John Paul II sees the question whether it would be consistent with Christian faith to attribute to the non-Christian religions a role of participated mediation in the salvation of their followers as a matter that needs much further study before the official magisterium can take a position on it. That this is his view is suggested by what he said to the members of the Secretariat for Non-Christians at the conclusion of their plenary assembly in 1987. There remain many questions which we have to develop and articulate more clearly. How does God work in the lives of people of different religions? How does his saving activity in Jesus Christ effectively extend to those who have not professed faith in him? In the coming years, these questions and related ones will become more and more important for the church in a pluralistic world, and pastors, with the collaboration of experienced theologians, must direct their studious attention to them. I cannot think of any more appropriate note on which to conclude this chapter on papal teaching since Vatican II than the one sounded by John Paul II in this address to the body which he subsequently renamed Pontifical Council for Interreligious Dialogue. What it tells us is that, while the official magisterium of the Catholic Church has come far on this issue, it is still open to further development, and it looks to experienced theologians, as we have seen it do in the past, to lead the way. Conclusion as we come to the end of our history of Christian thought about salvation for those outside the church, it seems appropriate to reflect on what we have learned about the way in which the teaching of the church can develop and change in the course of the centuries. We begin our reflections by recalling the key statement made by Pope John XXIII in his opening address to the bishops at the Second Vatican Council. The substance of the ancient doctrine of the deposit of the faith is one thing, and the way in which it is presented is another. About ten years later, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith in its declaration, Mysterium Ecclesiae, spelled out some of the reasons why, in the course of the centuries, there have been changes in the way the Church's teaching has been presented. For the first time, an official document of the Catholic Church explicitly recognized the historical conditioning which inevitably affects the way in which her faith has been expressed. It acknowledged the fact that, at an earlier period, a dogmatic truth might be expressed incompletely or imperfectly, and only later, when considered in a broader context of faith or human knowledge, receive a fuller and more perfect expression. Pope John distinguished the substance of the Church's doctrine from the way it has been expressed. As I see it, the substance of the doctrine whose history we have been following is that God has assigned to the Church a necessary role in the divine economy of salvation.
As Christ is the one mediator, so his body, the church, has a subordinate but necessary role of mediation in the salvation of mankind. However, during most of the church's history, this truth has been expressed in a negative way by the formula, no salvation outside the church. This formulation of the doctrine frequently led to the naming of categories of people who, being outside the church, were thought to be excluded from salvation and destined for eternal damnation. The Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has encouraged us to look for the historical factors that have influenced the way in which the Church has expressed her faith. It would seem useful, as a conclusion of our study, to recall the factors that have historically conditioned the formulation of the doctrine of the Church's necessity for salvation down through the centuries. Our study has shown that during the first three centuries of Church history, the saying, No Salvation Outside the Church, was used exclusively as a warning to Christians who had separated themselves from the Catholica through adherence to an heretical or schismatic sect. Those who coined or used this formula were, with few exceptions, bishops entrusted with pastoral care of the Christian community and responsible for maintaining its unity. Identifying communio with caritas, they looked upon heresy and schism as sins against charity, infecting not only the founders of the sects, but all who followed them. Convinced as they were that dissident Christians were guilty of grave sin in their adherence to an heretical or schismatic sect, it is understandable that their pastoral concern would lead them to express the doctrine of the necessity of the church in the form of a warning to dissident Christians that there was no salvation for them if they remained outside the Catholica. As long as Christianity was a forbidden and persecuted religion, we have found no instance of such a warning being addressed to the pagans who were still the majority in the Roman Empire. But from the end of the 4th century, when Christianity had become the official religion of the empire, we begin to find the fathers of the church addressing a similar warning to pagans and Jews. Here their argument was that by now the gospel had been preached everywhere in the world. All had had ample opportunity to hear and respond to it, and there was no excuse for those who persisted in their refusal to accept it. Now, not only Christian heretics and schismatics, but pagans and Jews as well, were judged guilty of grave sin for refusing to join the Christian community. And so, in the 6th century, we find Fulgentius, Bishop of Ruspe, formulating the doctrine of the necessity of belonging to the church in terms of the belief that all pagans, Jews, heretics, and schismatics would be condemned to hell. That this remained the standard expression of the doctrine for almost a thousand years is shown by the fact that the Council of Florence in 1442 incorporated Fulgentius's formula into its decree for the Jacobites. What are the historical factors that conditioned medieval Christians to express the doctrine of the necessity of the church in so negative a fashion? First of all, there is the fact that their world was practically identical with Christian Europe. They were aware of the Muslim world, of course, but that was the world of the infidel, the enemy against whom the crusaders were fought. If they were vaguely aware of a world beyond the limits of Christendom, it did not seem to enter into their theological speculation. When they spoke of the possibility that someone might never have heard the gospel preached, they imagined the case of a child brought up in the wilderness. 
The limits of their geographical horizon led them to the conviction that everyone had had ample opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. At the same time, the limits of their grasp of human psychology led them to the conviction that all those who had heard the message of the gospel and did not accept it must be guilty of sinning against the truth, which surely was evident to them. The medieval Christian does not seem to have been capable of understanding how Jews, for instance, living in the midst of Christendom, could fail to recognize the truth of the Christian religion, or how their persistence in their own religion could be anything else than a sin of obduracy. These limits of the geographical and psychological horizons of medieval Christians are historical factors which profoundly condition their expression of the doctrine of the necessity of the Church for salvation. The atrocious formulation of this doctrine, which the Council of Florence incorporated into its decree for the Jacobites, can be understood only if one takes into consideration the cultural factors which conditioned medieval Christians to think that all those outside the church must be guilty of grave sin, and hence that God would justly condemn them all to hell. The limits of this geographical horizon were to be drastically expanded just 50 years after the Council of Florence when Columbus discovered America. Awareness that there were whole continents inhabited by people who had never before had the opportunity to believe in Christ led Catholic theologians to express the doctrine of the necessity of the church for salvation in terms consistent with belief in God's salvific will in regard to all those generations prior to the arrival of the missionaries. Interestingly enough, the necessity of rethinking the medieval solution to this question stimulated some of those theologians to question the assumption that all who had heard the gospel but had not accepted it must be guilty of sin and rejecting the salvation that was offered to them. It would take several centuries more for the limits of the psychological horizon to expand sufficiently so that the presumption of guilt, which was characteristic of the medieval judgment concerning all those outside the church, would gradually change, first into a recognition that some of them might be in good faith, and then into the general presumption of innocence, which is now the official attitude of the Catholic Church. Our final question then is, what factors have contributed to forming the positive attitude concerning the salvation of those outside the Church, which is so striking a characteristic of the Second Vatican Council? In the first place, I would mention a development that exemplifies what Vatican II called remembering that in Catholic teaching there exists an order or hierarchy of truths. You are 11. This involves recognizing the primary importance of the truth that God wills the salvation of every human being. To attribute to the universal salvific will of God the first place in a hierarchy of truths means giving a subordinate place to the necessity of such means of salvation as baptism and membership in the church. Such secondary truths, then, have to be understood and formulated in such a way as to confirm, rather than conflict with, the primary truth. Besides this theological development, other factors have also played an important part in bringing about the positive attitude of the modern Catholic Church concerning the salvation of those outside. Perhaps the best way to describe these factors is to speak of a broadening of horizons. In place of a ghetto mentality that was rather typical of Catholicism in the past, Catholics are now open to the values present in the world outside the church. 
in the first place through the impact of the ecumenical movement, which came to them at first from the Protestant and Anglican churches, Catholics have come to recognize other Christians as brothers and sisters in Christ. Then, more gradually, there has been the opening of the minds of Catholics to the people who do not share the Christian faith and to the values to be found in their religions. It is obvious that when people are no longer seen as strangers and adversaries, but are accepted as partners in dialogue, they are much less likely to be judged guilty of sin for remaining faithful to their own religious traditions. The conclusion we come to is that cultural factors have had a decisive influence on the way that the dogmatic truth about the necessity of the Church for salvation has been expressed by the Catholic Church in the past, and on the way that it is being expressed now. The limited horizons of the medieval Christian mentality, on the one hand, and the expansion of those horizons that began with the discovery of the New World just 500 years ago, are elements of the historical conditioning which the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith has told us we must take into account in interpreting church teaching. Indeed, without taking this into account, it would be hardly possible to explain the difference between what the Catholic Church said in 1442 and what it is saying today about the possibility of salvation for all those people who are outside the Church. To conclude this book, where we began, let us return in our mind's eye to Still River, Massachusetts, and to the gravestone with the epitaph, Extra Ecclesiam Nulla Salus. I have often heard fellow Jesuits remark on the irony of the situation in which Leonard Feeney found himself for many years, that a man who was so deeply convinced that there was no salvation outside the Catholic Church should himself be outside by virtue of a sentence of excommunication. I have no doubt that in his own mind he was not outside at all, being convinced that no one could be validly excommunicated for defending a dogma of Catholic faith. It is important to keep in mind that Leonard Feeney was not condemned for heresy. What got him eventually excommunicated was the fact that he accused the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith of heresy, and then refused to go to Rome to discuss the matter. Is his epitaph, then, a heresy or a dogma of Catholic faith? It is not a heresy, of course. What we have tried to show in this book is that it is only one way, and a very imperfect way at that, in which Christians have expressed their belief that God has given to his church a necessary part to play in his plan to save the world. We cannot be too grateful for the fact that in our day the Catholic Church has found a much better way than this to speak of its own role in the divine economy of salvation.